This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning. Thanks again for joining. Over the next few minutes, I will give a brief overview of the current state-of-the-art treatment for metastatic prostate cancer in 2021. Approximately 5 to 10% of all men diagnosed with prostate cancer will have distant metastases detected at the time of diagnosis. These spots are usually first seen on conventional imaging, by which I mean a CT scan and bone scan. However, as we increasingly utilize PET imaging for newly diagnosed patients, either in PSMA or in axiom in PET, we are seeing more patients diagnosed with distant metastases at the time of diagnosis. This does not reflect a higher degree of risk, but rather just a more sensitive imaging technique that we are increasingly utilizing. It's important to keep in mind that unlike many other cancers, metastatic prostate cancer can be suppressed and treated for many years. In fact, the average survival of five plus years for metastatic prostate cancer is far longer than that seen with other stage four cancers. Our goal of treatment is to suppress the cancer as durably and as potently as we can with upfront hormonal therapy. Many of our treatment decisions in patients with metastatic prostate cancer are guided by the assessment of volume of metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis. This definition is based on conventional imaging with CT and bone scan and not by PET scan. High volume disease is defined as either the presence of visceral organ metastases, such as spots of cancer in the lung or liver, or the presence of four or more cancer metastases in the bone with at least one falling outside the spine and pelvis. The survival curves on the right illustrate the difference in average survival for men with low versus high volume disease. If you focus only on the green lines, the top plot shows the survival in those with high volume disease whereas the bottom plot shows the survival for low-volume disease. Comparing these two green lines, you see that the average survival is much longer for those with low-volume disease on scan. For patients with metastatic prostate cancer, the standard of care has changed. We used to treat such patients with Lupron with or without bicalutamide. Now in 2021, in almost all cases, Treatment should be intensified with a combination of Lupron plus either abiraterone, enzalutamide, apalutamide, or docetaxel chemotherapy. All four studies have demonstrated a long-term survival benefit added to Lupron as compared with patients treated with Lupron alone. In the case of docetaxel, it is important to note that this long-term survival benefit was primarily restricted to those with high-volume disease as per the definition we discussed on the previous slide. Shown here are the long-term survival results of all four of the treatments, docetaxel and high-volume metastatic prostate cancer, abiraterone, enzalutamide, and apalutamide. What is remarkable about all four of these studies is despite the slightly different patient populations and different groups of patients enrolled in each study, you see nearly identical hazard ratios for improved survival with combination treatment versus standard androgen deprivation therapy alone. So when picking one particular treatment, given these similar long-term survival benefit across the therapies, how do we choose? 
Well, this depends on a number of factors, and there really requires a detailed discussion with your clinician. Number one, the side effects and quality of, uh, quality of life and impact on quality of life is critical. So for example, docetaxel may cause neuropathy, hair loss, and a rare risk of lung inflammation that can be quite serious. On the other hand, docetaxel is given for a finite treatment period of six cycles or 18 weeks, as opposed to continuous combined hormone therapy until resistance. Other medical factors may factor in. For example, a patient with heart control diabetes may not want to take or be given prednisone concurrently with abiraterone because of elevations in blood sugar levels. For that patient, it may be more appropriate to treat with apalutamide or enzalutamide. Drug-drug interactions may factor in. We particularly see this in patients who are on chronic anticoagulation, some of which may interact with apalutamide and enzalutamide. Drug costs are a huge factor and I think play a big role in our treatment decision-making, like it or not. Abiraterone is available in generic form and has also has the advantage of an alternative dosing schema in which patients can take one tablet with a light fat meal as opposed to four tablets on an empty stomach, which can substantially reduce the cost of medication. And finally, as we've discussed, for those with low volume disease, there really was no proven long-term survival advantage with docetaxel in this setting, and we would choose amongst the hormonal agents for these particular patients. Once a patient starts on treatment, the nadir or low point in PSA after six months of starting treatment is a very good indicator for how long the cancer will stay sensitive to hormone therapy, as well as a predictor for long-term survival outcomes. Shown here in the Kaplan-Meier plot is the long-term survival dividing patients by nadir PSA, above four, which is represented by the bottom curve, between 0.2 to four, represented by the middle curve, and those with an optimal PSA less than 0.2 are shown in the top curve. With the newer studies with the combination treatments with abiraterone, apalutamide, enzalutamide, and with docetaxel, the same holds true. A nadir PSA of less than 0.2 after 6 to 12 months of therapy is a sign that the cancer has a better than average responsiveness to hormonal therapy and improved long-term outcomes. In patients with metastatic cancer, we still consider treating the primary tumor. There are potential advantages to this approach, including the prevention of new sites of cancer spread, as well as control of the primary tumor which can otherwise lead to problems such as urinary obstruction. As shown in the survival curve on the left, in patients with low volume metastatic disease, there was a long-term survival advantage achieved with the addition of radiation to the prostate coupled with hormonal therapy as compared to hormonal therapy alone. A similar survival advantage could not be demonstrated in those with high volume disease as shown on the right. This is another example where the volume of disease at the time of diagnosis impacts our treatment decisions. And based on these results, we do offer radiation to the prostate in patients with low volume metastatic cancer. We don't routinely do so for those with higher volume disease. However, it is worth noting that a patient who has obstructive urinary symptoms related to the primary tumor that does not readily respond with the initiation of systemic therapy that patient should still be considered for focal treatment of the prostate. 
finally, it's worth noting that there are a number of ongoing questions in this clinical disease setting, and it's one of the most active areas in prostate cancer research at the current time. Amongst the pertinent questions are, should we combine chemotherapy and hormone therapy? Right now, we do not recommend this approach as there's no phase three clinical trial data to support. There are multiple clinical trials underway. In patients with only a few metastases detected on a sensitive scan technique, such as a PSMA PET, should we be adding in metastasis-directed radiation for such patients? This is an ongoing question. In selected patients, should we think about addition of PARP inhibitors, particularly those with DNA repair pathway mutations, such as BRCA2? Should we think about the addition of lutetium-617, which you'll hear more about? Should we think about that as a upfront treatment in combination with hormonal therapy? And then finally, should we think about revisiting the concept of intermittent therapy? Earlier, I talked about this approach in the rising PSA setting. In patients with metastatic cancer, this is not standard of care. However, in patients who are on intensified hormonal therapy, for example, Lupron plus Abiraterone, who achieve an optimal PSA meter of less than 0.2 after 12 months, I think it's an open question as to whether we can revisit intermittent therapy for such patients. These treatments and these ideas should not be considered standard of care at the current time, but stay tuned for updates over the next several years as we get results from these studies. To wrap up, here are the take-home points. The PSA nadir, or low point after the start of treatment, along with the volume of metastatic disease using the definition that we've defined, are key prognostic factors in this setting. The standard of care for nearly all men with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer should be combination treatment. Lupron coupled with one of the shown there, abiraterone and lutamide, apalutamide, or docetaxel, with the latter being restricted to those with higher volume disease. Treatment of the primary tumor is recommended for those with low volume disease on baseline imaging or obstructive urinary symptoms that don't readily improve with treatment. Thank you very much for your attention. I would have loved to join the live Q&A event, but I'm celebrating my 10th wedding anniversary with my wife this weekend. I hope I can always see you live at our next event. Great. Thank you, Rahul. Let me ask one question, of, of first of um, Mac. Um, uh, so Mac, can you just expand a little bit on um, the role, and I know you will, <laughs> the role of uh, radiation therapy to the prostate uh, in men with metastatic prostate cancer, which Rahul described. Here's my specific question to you. The study that, the, the, you know, the Sentinel study that everyone cites, which is the, the Stampede study, um, uh, used radiation to the prostate only. Um, and yet you've been telling us there's a high risk of pelvic nodes. So how should we be treating patients? And is there a limit to the extent of metastatic disease beyond which you say, you know what, probably radiation is not indicated? Yeah, so that's a great question. So in my, in my practice, so first of all, the fractionation that they use in the Stampede study is not a fractionation that I would use to try to get local control in the classic sense. So I don't actually use the fractionation, although I use their data to justify doing prostate radiation. 
And we talked yesterday about treatment of the primary. I use SBRT to treat the primary in four fractions. If I'm not going to treat the pelvis, I just treat the prostate. And then I use the justification based on the oral study, which deals with SBRT for metastatic disease. So if I have a patient with metastatic disease, I usually, and they don't have bulky adenopathy. They just have a, a local primary, which is untreated, and say an isolated bone med or isolated pelvic met, I treat the prostate and I treat the metastasis with SBRT. I don't typically treat the whole pelvis. If they have nodal disease that's obvious on PET scan or by CT or MRI, I will treat the prostate and the nodes and the metastasis. So that's sort of, uh, that's sort of how I look at it. But I don't know, I think that pelvic radiation can be immunosuppressive. And so if a patient has an isolated metastasis, I treat the prostate and the isolated metastasis. Got it. And uh, the second part of that question that I had for you was, if, um, you know, how many, if you're not going to be treating the metastases, let's say it's 10 spots or five spots, at what point, so the patient presents with metastatic disease, um, at what point do you say, no, there's no reason to treat the prostate itself? Oh, well, that's, I, I, you know, so when you talk about the stampede study, the number of the high volume versus low volume disease was based on conventional imaging. Right. So if a patient has conventional imaging that shows no evidence of metastatic disease, but a PSMA PET that shows several metastases, I still treat those metastases. Great. What, what, what if you have 20 metastases on PSMA PET? Well, then, you know, you have systemic disease. I've never treated 20 metastases, but I've treated quite a few. So, you know, you have to really individualize it. When you look at nodal disease, I think that nodal disease, there's a paper that you all, I think uh, you were involved with, uh, Susan Hallaby looking at the prognosis of patients with metastatic disease. So I look at nodal metastases differently than bone metastases. So if a patient has a lot of bone meds, I think they need bone targeted treatment and they need chemotherapy and other kinds of treatment. If they have a bunch of lymph nodes involved that are in the pelvis, they can have internal, external iliac, presacral, common iliac. I don't hesitate to treat a whole lot of nodes that are in the pelvis. I can treat all the way to the diaphragm, and those patients can have a very long and sustained uh, be benefit of treatment with only nodal disease. So I think the biology of patients with nodal disease only would support more aggressive radiotherapy than the patients with bone-dominant disease. Understood. Hella, let me ask you before we, we, we move on to the next talk. Um, in patients with known bone metastases, who of those patients will you send to our radiation oncology colleagues to consider uh, radiation of the prostate? That's a great question. Um, so I think when we think about the stampede arm H data, that is the main data that we're thinking about uh, when we're considering the, the benefit of prostate-directed radiotherapy in the context of hormonal therapy in the context of metastatic disease. When we think about that, we really need to be, to be convinced that this patient has low volume metastatic disease, so less sites. Um, I, I think it's, it's reasonable to, to, um, to first evaluate how many sites are, are there. And if the patient has 
five or less, you know, perhaps that would be reasonable to, to discuss. And we know that from, from that data, there seems to be a, a, a real benefit to that population to consider. Yeah, and I guess I would add to that, uh, the patients that we wouldn't radiate, as Mac was alluding to, high risk because of metastases to liver. Or, Absolutely. Uh, because those patients are not likely to benefit from that. But it is a mind shift. Uh, it wasn't so long ago that uh, no matter what Mac and Matt were telling us that we didn't believe in addressing the prostate in the setting of metastatic disease. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.